Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. of God seeking us and finding us. We read this from 1 Peter 3, verse 15, this morning, just that one verse. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for that hope which is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Amen. Please be seated. In the year 52 AD, the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, made his way to Athens. As you know, Athens was the philosophical capital of the world. It's where the great minds and scholars would come to philosophize about life and the meaning of existence. The likes of Plato and Socrates. And here the Apostle Paul comes, one who self-admittedly was not strong in speech or person or in rhetoric, who the Corinthians, fellow Greeks, said was strong in letter, but weak in person. Yet Paul, surveying the city, went to Mars Hill, the cultural and philosophical and religious hub of the day. And there, weak Paul, which is what his name even means, little or humble, gave a sermon, gave a defense of his faith, gave an apologetic of Christianity, that which we read earlier in Acts chapter 17. No doubt it probably wasn't the most profound or innovating speech that had ever been spoken in that place. It perhaps did not wow the crowds, as they say. In fact, some probably ignored it. Others disregarded it. And we read there in Acts chapter 17, some even mocked it. But it was a testimony of what was true, a testimony to the truth. And the truth ultimately does not need to be weaved or crafted with fine rhetoric. It does not need to be propped up with profound intellect or wit. The truth always rings true, as they say. It has a weight, a gravitas to it all by itself. It is a testimony unto itself. Because all truth comes from the source of truth, which is Almighty God Himself. As much as anyone tells the truth, they are representing God and reflecting His image as image bearers. And therefore, conversely, all that tell falsehoods reflect the opposite, reflect the father of lies, Satan Himself. As a result of 
Paul's sermon, Paul's defense. Yes, some were unconvinced, but others listened and believed. And some others said, we want to hear more about this, about the resurrection unto life. And as a result, because of the testimony that Paul gave on that day, there were some that went from darkness unto life, went from death to life. And God's redemptive accomplishments uh, were achieved that day. His redemptive purposes were accomplished because of Paul's faithfulness in that moment. Because Paul did not shy away. As he says in Romans chapter 1, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. A few of Any of us will probably have a Mars Hill experience. Few will take center stage at Carnegie Hall or give a testimony before Congress or be interviewed by CNN or Fox News or perhaps win a Super Bowl. We may not be given a prominent platform to give a testimony, a defense of our faith, but that does not mean that we do not have opportunities to do so. For Our testimonies, our defenses, are not any less valuable than those prominent ones given to some. And so this morning, I want to come back to that passage that we began to look at last week and narrow in on verse 15, that classic verse in this epistle that we're always to be ready to make a defense to anyone that would ask. And as we do so, let me remind you that Peter is writing this to the church. This is a word to the church. In other words, this is a word to you. And so the question as we approach this verse is how? How are we always to be ready? And how is it that we are to defend the faith? But before we look at that question... Maybe we should answer why. Why would Peter say that we are to make a defense at all? Surely the Lord doesn't need our help. That is absolutely true. This week in the officer training course with those men that are going through that time, we have been looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we read in chapter 2 on that chapter on God and the Trinity, it reads this way, that God alone unto himself is all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them which he does not already have. You hear what the confession of faith is saying is that God is not looking to get from man something that he doesn't already have. That man can't achieve something that God can't achieve on his own. And that's exactly what Paul says even in his speech in Acts chapter 17. You heard it earlier. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served 
by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is making it very clear that we are dependent upon God, not the other way around. And so, if we give a defense, are we saying somehow God is insufficient to defend himself? Is he somehow lacking and in need of us? Well, of course not. God is capable of defending himself. And so the question is, why? Why would God want us to make a defense? Well, the mystery is this. That God has chosen to mediate his message through men and women. That that is his normative means. Is that he is not writing it in the sky himself? That he's not doing these supernatural works and acts and signs and wonders? But rather through the simple means of preaching and teaching and the proclamation of truth through sinful men and women, God is making himself known, making his message known. In other words, he is making his message known through you and me. God's chosen method of proclaiming the good news of the gospel and the advance of the spread of his kingdom is through the church. And as I say that, do not think that's right, and that's why we support pastors and missionaries. We leave that to the professionals. Now, the scriptures are saying that the proclamation and the advance of the kingdom is through you. God has saved you. God is working in you. God has given you a testimony of how he has both worked in the past as well as how he is working presently in your life. And let me tell you, our testimony is not that we are perfect Christians, that we are model believers, because it's far from that. We are very imperfect ones, but we testify to a perfect Savior that loves us and gave his life for us. That is the testimony of faith. That is the defense of the faith that the world needs to hear. And notice, it is a defense and that we're not to be in offense. We're not to make arrogant arguments or look for fights or try to make others think that we are more intelligent and they are more dumb and that we have all of the answers or that we are to just blow up our social media page and blast every atheist that is out there. That is not what we are called to do. Because Peter makes very clear in his message that yes, we are to give a reason for the hope that is within us. But notice what it says at the very end of verse 15, to do so with gentleness and with respect. And as we've seen again and again in this epistle, that we need to have humility in all things both in our life as well as in our speech. That we're to have a servant-like attitude. We're to have a Christ-likeness. For we read of Christ in chapter 2, verse 23, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. 
In other words, as we give our defense, as we give our hope, there should never be a time that we lose our cool, as they say. Yes, we're to speak passionately, we're to speak earnestly, but we're not to do so with vitriol or contempt or cruelty or a better-than-thou attitude, but rather with a humble boldness. That is the way that we're to give our defense in that attitude and in that manner. And so how? How are we to do that, you may ask? Well, I think there's four ways that God would have us to make a proper defense. And the first is this, and I think it begins with this. It's the holiness of life defense. Too often when we think of apologetics, and that's what this is, is giving an apology, not, an, uh, not apologizing for doing something wrong, but, but what that word means is to give a defense that when we make that apology and do these apologetics, so often we think that it entails these intelligent questions that we're to ask and to engage others, or these grand intellectual debates that we should be able to have all formed in our mind or, or perhaps have these witty comebacks to whatever the person might say. I would say to you this morning, first and foremost, if we want to be a great witness for Christ, it begins with our life, not with our words. I notice for a moment in this letter how often Paul talks about our manner of life. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Prepare your minds, be sober-minded. Verse 14, Be obedient children's children, do not be conformed to the world. Verse 15, Be holy as he who called you is holy. Verse 22, Purify your souls by obedience to the truth with a sincere and brotherly love. Chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race a holy priesthood, a holy nation. Verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse 12, keep your conduct among Gentiles pure. Verse 15, by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of fools. Chapter 3, that they may be won over without a word when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And even in this small passage Right around it, in verse 13, it says, be zealous for what is good. And then again in verse 16, have a clear conscience so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You get the point, do you not? Peter puts a tremendous emphasis upon doing. Having a holy life, a holy Conduct much more than having the right things to say. Obviously, words are to be a part of our testimony. Don't get me wrong. As you've heard it say, said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, obviously, we need to use words to explain the gospel. But what I think Francis of Assisi was trying to say, who that quote is attributed to, is that don't let your life, first and foremost, be out of accord with your words. Don't let your life discredit what you're saying, but let your life be a testimony. Verify what's coming out of your mouth. Because 
as they say, your actions speak louder than your words. And for Christians as a whole, that's where we need to begin, is it not? That there is a distinction. That your beliefs, that your faith shapes your life. Not just from what you do from 11 to 12 or or 12.15 most Sundays, but the entirety of it. That our worldview, those things that we hold to be true, shapes the entirety of our being, shapes the entirety of our world, both our actions as well as our words. And Peter is saying here, before giving a testimony, before giving a word for Christ, examine your life. Not to be sinless, of course not, but to not be in open contradiction to the basic commands of Scripture. This was what Paul's concern was, remember? When he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. Notice he says he doesn't want his life to be incongruent with his words. And so it must begin there. The holiness of life defense. Second, the holiness of heart defense. As it says there in verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, make holy Christ in your hearts. That an outward life conformity to Christ ultimately comes from an inward heart conformity. That our actions spring forth from a heart that has been made right by Christ. That has been cleansed, that has been sanctified, that has been saved, that has been made anew. That we're not to be the opposite, not just to have outward conformity, but our hearts be far from the Lord. All of this we've probably seen before. We've seen it in ourselves. We've seen it definitely with our children. When you tell them to do something and and they do it, but you also see that murmuring, that grumbling, and that complaining, that look in their eye like they're not really enjoying this, but they're doing this merely because they have to. With a little bit of resentment in their hearts. And not too much joy or pleasure in the act that they are called to do. And that's obviously not what the Lord wants us to do, to do this just because we ought to or we have to. No, we live our life in a holy way, ultimately not because we're trying to live our life before men, but because we're trying to live our life before God. Not as man pleasers, but God fears. We're not to live one way in public and another in private. In fact, there should be no inconsistency with your public life and your private life. But yet somehow we've, we've been able to make that distinction in our culture, have we not? That whatever happens privately is just someone's private business. And therefore it's out of scrutiny of the rest of the world. And therefore it's permissible. 
no matter what it is, as long as it's done in private, as they say. Beloved, in the sight of God, we have no private life. All of our life is lived in the full and public view of Almighty God. We live our life quorum Deo before the face of God who sees and knows all. There's nothing hidden from Him. Therefore, we're to have a holiness of life because chiefly we have a holiness of heart that the Lord has redeemed and saved our hearts. Right? He's made Christ holy. He's set apart Christ in our hearts that we don't compartmentalize Christ but Christ is over, above, and in and through all of who we are. Heart, mind, body, soul, and life. That is the kind of life that God is looking for. That is the kind of God, life that, that we ought to live, that, that Jesus deserves. God is first and foremost concerned with the whole of who we are. Listen to Jesus' condemnation of the people during his day. And when he said, this people... Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're saying the right thing, but their hearts are not anywhere near. And the worship and the adoration that Christ would love to see in our own hearts and lives. And so before we are to open our lips, we must examine our heart and to examine our life in the light of this word. Well, third, then, there's an honor for Christ defense. None of what I said before means that we're to be silent. No, we're, as Paul or Peter says, always to be ready, always prepared to give a defense. And as I said earlier, a defense requires words. If you're Defense attorney didn't use words. You would want a new attorney. So how should we speak? And as soon as I say that, some of you might say, well, to speak about Christ, to to speak about things that in our culture may be seen as controversial or perhaps what people do not want to hear, well, that's difficult for me to do. And I'm right there with you. Or you might say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm just really not very good with my words. I'm, just, I'm naturally not an outgoing person. I'm, I'm shy. I'm reserved. I'm, a, I'm an introvert. And so when you tell me to, to speak and to speak a word for Christ, well, that hits on all of my fears. And I understand that completely. And it is true that all of us are different. Not one of us is alike. But notice what it says here in verse 15. It says that we are to honor Christ. That means we're to honor Christ with the skills and the abilities and the giftedness that we have been given. And yes, some are more gifted, some are more talented than others, some are more articulate and intelligent We'll confess that completely. But this passage is saying that no matter our skills, no matter our giftedness, no matter our abilities or intellect, we are to honor Christ with what we've been given. We're to honor Christ 
in our actions as well as in our words to a watching world. That we are to make a verbal defense, a verbal testimony for Christ. For some, that may be the ability to give a 30-minute speech. Or perhaps to have a two-hour conversation with a friend or a co-worker. For others of us, that may just be one sentence, rightly timed. That all of those are a defense of the faith. Yes, some fuller than others. But in all of our speech, if it be that two-hour conversation, that the Lord would open that door, praise God, or if it would just be that that timely word given, that that is of value as well. No matter your gifts, no matter your abilities. Last week was my wife's birthday, and of course I, I wrote her a birthday card. It was a fairly long card. It was a nice card, if I say so myself. And my eight-year-old daughter wrote her a card as well. And I say card in quotes because it was more of a note. It was just written on some school book paper, that lined paper from her notebook. It was about three sentences long. Do you think my wife was any less honored by that than by mine? Of course not. In some ways, that was probably more special to her. I was perhaps trumped by an eight-year-old. And that's what I was trying to say, is that we're to honor Christ, we're to have a testimony or a word for Christ, no matter who you are. That You don't have to be a professional, you do not have to be a scholar. Each and every one of us can honor Christ. And we should never back down when given the opportunity to do so, to give glory to God as he deserves. To that end, all of us can do that. And it starts with giving our hope. And that is the fourth defense, the hope in Christ. As it says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. It's a testimony of your hope. And so you need to know what is your hope. What is it that you're placing your faith and trust and confidence in? James Sire, a Christian apologist and philosopher, tells the story of an inquisitive young boy who once asked his father, Father, what holds up the world? And the father said to him, Well, a a camel holds up the world. And the boy asks, well, what holds up the camel? Well, a kangaroo holds up the camel, which holds up the world. And so, of course, the boy asked, well, who holds up the kangaroo? Well, an elephant. An elephant holds up the kangaroo, which upholds the camel, which upholds the world. And just as the boy was about ready to ask the next logical question, the father says, and it's elephant all the way down. (laughs) And Sire asks, what is your elephant? What is it that goes all the way down? 
What holds up your world? What is your hope and your confidence? Because whatever that is, that is your defense for what you do, what you do. That is your worldview. And let me suggest, as we confessed earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism, that that question and answer is a wonderful starting point to begin to verbalize your defense, your hope. Because it asks that very question, what is your comfort? What is your hope, both in this life and in the next? Both in life and in death. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free. That is our testimony. That is our defense. That is our witness. That's what needs to be known. That's what needs to be heard. That we pointed out with the whole of who we are, both with our life and with our words. And so let me ask, just as you reflect on this last week, who did you have an opportunity to give the hope, to give that testimony, to give that simple word of truth too. And did you take advantage of it? Because quite frankly, when we examine our life, we see that we probably have a lot more opportunities than we would initially think. And yes, there are times that we miss those opportunities. When we think, I wasn't ready, or we think later on, you know what, I, 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 I said this silly response instead of saying this over here and we think wow why couldn't I have been a little clearer a little more articulate why why didn't I talk about Christ in that moment instead of the weather or whatever else there's many blown opportunities and we never bat 1000 for sure but I think we should have hope that even Peter was not perfect in this was he Does Peter know anything about blown opportunities? Well, absolutely. Three times he was given an opportunity to testify about Christ, and he missed, and missed badly, and the rooster crowed. But I think it was through that experience, and by God's mercy and grace, that he was able to give a sure testimony of his hope. We we see it on the day of Pentecost, for sure. As he gives a testimony of Jesus Christ and the hope that was in him. And therefore, when we miss those opportunities, use those times to think, next time that comes, this is what I should say, or this is perhaps how I should approach that situation, so that we would be ready, we would be prepared. But be reminded again that our role is not to persuade anyone. Our role is merely to profess. Profess Christ, to honor Christ with the hope that is within us. It's only God by his Holy Spirit that can change hearts. And he takes his word and he takes our testimony to that word and and work and he does change hearts and he is pleased to do so. And again, this is a word to the church. That means this is a word to us all from the greatest of you to the least, from the oldest amongst you to the youngest, from adults to youth to children, that we can all profess the hope 
that is within us. Given our age and given our maturity and given our time to walk with Christ. Let me finish with this story. Recently I heard an interview with a Christian family that had a severely autistic child. And they talked about the the challenges and difficulty of parenting such a child. And how they worked with their, their son, William, for him to be able to speak and for him to be able to verbalize. And through persistent work, they were able to break through so that he was able to give simple responses and and basic communication. But if you know anything about children with autism, they have an amazing ability to memorize. And so even though he had difficulty answering, how are you feeling or what do you want? If you would ask William, what is it that you believe? He would tell you, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, and of Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. Because he could recite the Apostles' Creed perfectly, word for word. And hearing him do so, to struggle with simple words, but yet confess his faith, that faith that had been passed on for centuries was enough to bring a tear to your eye. It was beautiful. And that's the hope each one of us has. That's what ought to be upon our minds and upon our lips to always be ready to all that asks. Being reminded of that scriptural promise, he who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So may the Lord be pleased to use our efforts all for his kingdom and for his glory. And may we, by his Holy Spirit, always be ready to give the hope that is within us. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, Lord. How many times have we missed those opportunities to say or speak a word? Just a word of truth, O Lord. A word of who you are, what you are doing in our life. To give hope and comfort to a, a world that is seeking anything of stability, anything of truth, anything that they can put their lives upon. And Lord, we have the the solid rock, the firm foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Lord, help us not to keep that to ourselves. But Lord, may you give us many opportunities, even this week, to profess the hope that is within us. And that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope this day and for all of eternity. And we thank you for him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.